Well, it's good to see you this morning. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you know that we've been walking through a book in the Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. And today we finish that book. At the start, the book of Ecclesiastes sets out to answer one very simple question. It's an important question. It's a question that we all ask ourselves. And the question the book of Ecclesiastes sets out to ask, to answer right at the beginning is where in this world can we find meaning and purpose? And it's a question we all ask. It's an important question. Where in this world can we find meaning? Where in this world can our life find purpose? I know this is a question many of us ask because a few years ago when Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life and attempted to to answer this question in the book, it sold millions and millions and millions of copies. Because it's a question we're all asking. Where do we find meaning and where do we find purpose? And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you may be saying to yourself, every time I come to church, the author of Ecclesiastes and the pastors keep telling me where we can't find meaning. Every week we come and we talk about another place where we can't find meaning. We've talked about work doesn't bring ultimate meaning. We've talked about money doesn't bring ultimate meaning. Power, wisdom. None of these things bring ultimate meaning. And so you may have been wondering, where are we going to get to the point that we talk about what actually does bring meaning? We talked a little bit about it last week, and we're going to conclude that this morning and finally answer that question. Where does ultimate meaning lie? Think back with me, if you will, to a time that you were sitting um, in a classroom for some of you, it, it, you just have to think back a couple of days. You sit in a classroom every week. Uh, but for some of us, maybe it's a little bit further back. Think back to the last time that you were sitting uh, in a classroom. And the teacher was speaking from the front of the room. And you knew, you knew that eventually some of the things that the teacher were, was saying, you were going to be evaluated on. So you were sitting in math class and you knew the teacher was teaching all sorts of different math problems and some of those you were going to see again on some sort of evaluation, on some sort of test. Or you were sitting in a lecture in college and the professor was going on and on and on, but you knew you had to listen because at some point a piece of that was going to appear on an exam or you were going to be required to to integrate that into some sort of paper and so you needed to pay attention. And at some point to gain clarity in our classes, either you, either me, or a student would ask the teacher this question. As they were going on and on and in the middle of everything they were doing, someone would raise their hand and they would say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Professor Smith, I just, we're just curious as the class. All these things that you're talking about right now, is this going to be on the test? Just so we know, is this going to show up on the, on the test? And depending on the answer of the teacher or the professor, uh, it would greatly determine whether or not we were interested in what they had to say, right? If they said, no, it's probably not going to see it again. I just want to talk about it. We kind of kick back and put our pen down and say, all right, let's, we'll talk about it. But if they said, yes, you're going to see this again, then we would begin writing immediately. Because when we're in situations, when we feel like we're going to be evaluated, The criteria upon which we are going to be evaluated becomes exceedingly important to us. In any situation where there's an evaluation or a test, we want to know what's on the test. What are you going to hold me accountable for? A few weeks ago, um, 
one of the folks in our church here, Justin Joseph, he uh, is an adjunct professor down at Boston University, and he, and he does uh, some communication classes. So he's doing a public speaking class, and he, he asked me if I would come down and, and help with some of the discussion one night, uh, talking about public speaking and being a, a preaching and, and how that all works. And so I went down there, and I, I did my little piece, but the class was a couple of hours longer, so I got a chance to sit in the back of the classroom and, and listen to Justin and, 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 watch, and watch the students and watch their response. And so Justin was, was speaking, and, and I, don't know, I don't know if he's here, but, but just between you and me, I mean, it was just, it was, it was oh, okay, the class was going fine. Um, there he is. Hey. So I guess the class was awesome, and everything was great. No, Justin's a great teacher. You, maybe you heard him preach from this stage this summer. Excellent teacher. And so the students, they were taking notes and, and we were talking through, um, you know, public speaking and all these things. And then Justin said one thing that if any student at that point was not writing or most of them typing, they perked right up and they started writing and typing immediately. And Justin said, listen, next week, everyone has to give their informative speech. It's five minutes long. And here's the four things I'll be looking for. And all of a sudden, everybody was interested. Everybody wrote, everybody typed. And I guarantee you, those things that he was looking for as their teacher and professor got into their laptops, got into their tablets, and got into their notebooks. Because when we're going to be evaluated on something, we want to know, what's the criteria? What are you going to hold me to? And we're used to being evaluated, aren't we? We get evaluated all the time. In fact, now, today, the evaluations start even before a child is born. Many of you may know my wife is, is pregnant with our second child, and that kid has been evaluated already like three or four times. We go, and they, and they, they look, and they, we're measuring things and looking at heartbeats and, and looking at the brain. I mean, it's unbelievable what, what we're able to do. But the evaluation has already begun for that child. And once the child is born, the evaluation will continue. Because whether it's school or whether it's work or whether it's relationships with family, whether it's walking into just a social situation, we are used to being evaluated. We get evaluated all the time. You are evaluating me right now. How long is he going to go? Right? Why does he never wear a suit coat? I don't know but you're asking these questions. We're used to getting evaluated. We evaluate it all the time. And what we want to know when we're being evaluated is what are you going to hold me to? Remember, you, you had the boyfriend or girlfriend and, and, and it was serious. You're going to meet their parents for the first time. What was the question that you asked? Do you think they're going to like me? What, what should I say? What should I do? What should I wear? Because you, want, you know you're going into a situation where you're going evaluated. You want to know what the criteria is. We want to know very clearly so that we can pass the evaluation. I've heard it said that in healthy organizations, uh, healthy businesses, employees, members, volunteers should know within one sentence what it is they're being held accountable for. So we may have job descriptions that go on for pages, 
But in great organizations, uh, everyone who's there can tell you in one sentence what they're being held accountable for, what their job is, why they're there, how they're going to be evaluated. It makes me think uh, when I was in middle school, 13 or 14 years old, I used to come home from school every day. And every day on my driveway, there would be a stack of 46 newspapers. And uh, it was that fine publication, uh, the Omaha World Herald, that you all read every day. And there would be a stack of Omaha World Heralds on my driveway. And I would go and I would unwrap the plastic wrap around them and I would take each one and I'd put a rubber band around each one, fold it, put a rubber band, throw it in a bag. And if it was the summer, put it on my bike. And if there was snow on the ground, throw it over my shoulders. And then I would walk and I would make sure that the 46 houses that ordered the evening edition of the Omaha World Herald got it on time. It's important news in the Omaha World Herald. How else do you find out about corn shirts, right? <laughs> And whose cows got out of what pen? <laughs> but I was, that was my job. And now it strikes me that whenever something was misreported in the newspaper, no one yelled at me for that. I never got in trouble when something was misreported. If something was misprinted, a word was left out, the, the page was askew, something was left out of the final publication. I mean, that was a my problem. No one held me accountable for that. Uh, the only time I was in trouble is if one of those 46 people didn't get their paper on time like they paid for it. That's what I was held accountable for. In that small little window, those 46 people need to get their paper on time each and every day. And it's so clear and it's so simple. And when we're being evaluated, that's what we want. That sort of clarity, that sort of simplicity. Just let me know what it is. What's going to be on the test? What do I have to know? What do you want me to do? Sometimes we come to our relationship with God and we look at all the rules and we read all the parables. We hear everything that we're supposed to do and it can be the job description of who it is to be a follower of God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This job description can be completely overwhelming. Trying to keep it all going and trying to keep all the, the, the juggling balls up in the air and, and love our enemies and do our money and family and, and being a good person and doing all the things, the Bible and, and praying and, and doing everything that we're supposed to do, all the stuff that's in all of these pages, keeping it all in line and, and doing it all and, and doing it right can be overwhelming. And, and there's, we know, we know that if we believe in God, that there's, there's some sort of evaluation coming. There's some sort of evaluation coming tor towards us. And so we wonder, which, which piece of this, how, how do I know that I'm keeping this the way that I should? How do I know that, that, that I'm going to pass the evaluation? Wouldn't it be great if God would just take the whole thing and shrink it down to one simple sentence? Take the whole law and everything that's included in it, all the teachings that are in the scripture, and just take it down to one sentence that we can focus on and remember. And he would say, listen, when it comes right down to it, this sentence, this is what you'll be evaluated on. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm asking you to do. It's one of the reasons these last verses in Ecclesiastes are some of my favorite verses in all of scripture 
is because God makes it so plain and clear. When I have those questions, what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to be, I can come back to this one line and it puts everything in perspective. And he writes it right there in verse 13. He says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Here it is in one sentence. What the evaluation all circles around. All has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commands. You want your job description as a follower of God? We want our job description as a follower of Jesus Christ in every, any and every situation. Fear God and do what he says and keep his commands. And God takes the whole thing and just puts it down in one simple sentence for us. Who said, you're going to be evaluated. There's an evaluation coming, but this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who will fear me and do what it is that I say to do. Now, that word fear in the Bible, you see it in this verse, you see it in the book of Proverbs, you see it a few different places. The word fear, it doesn't just mean afraid. It doesn't mean that we're just scared of God, and so we're coerced into doing what he wants because we're afraid of him. I think that is a part of biblical fear. But the simplest way I can think of to define what biblical fear is, is to say that biblical fear is ultimately awe that leads to allegiance. Now, biblical fear, if we were just to break it down to its most simple definition, is awe that leads to allegiance. Meaning that I love and honor and respect God so much that I orient my entire life around what he says. That my, the way I uphold him, the way I view him, the way I see him changes everything that I do. And the truth for all of us, we like to think that we're independent. We like to think that we make our own decisions. But all of us are making our decisions in our life because we fear something. Because we fear something. And it can be in very simple things. Yesterday, uh, Lori and I were invited to a 50th birthday party of one of our friends. And we were going to be doing some different activities at this party. And so there was, there was, uh, we were at our house and, and we were trying to think through what we should wear to the party. And we knew we were going to walk into a room and there were going to be other people there. And there's this feeling that evaluation is going to take place. And so something as simple as a, as a dress code and trying to think through that, we, we had the conversation yesterday morning. Well, what are you going to wear? I don't know. What are you going to wear? I don't know. What is other people going to wear? Have you talked to anybody that's going? What are they going to wear? And these fears that we have, these things that we, that we hold up because we know we're going to be evaluated, then they affect the way we think and the way that we act. Even in the most simplistic ways. And when we look at our lives, an important question we need to ask ourselves, if this is the criteria upon which we are going to be evaluated, whether or not in our lives we have feared God and kept his commandments, then we need to make sure in our lives on a daily basis that we are fearing the right thing. All of us fear 
something. The question is, are we fearing the right thing? Let me just briefly talk about something that is happening in our world, and it's happening in the church, and I think it's one of the scariest things that's at work in the church in the United States today. And it all comes back to this idea of fear. All comes back to this idea of fear. And that is, is that in our culture today, we fear society and cultural norms so highly. We hold them so high and in such great reverence that when they come in direct opposition with fear of God and his commandments, even in the church, even with Christians, society's starting to win. We all fear something. Are we fearing the right thing? Maybe you've heard the story of William Wilberforce. I'm not gonna, we're not going to go into William Wilberforce's entire story here. There was a great movie that came out a couple years ago called Amazing Grace that, that recounts his life. But William Wilberforce lived in England in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. And he was a politician. And he was a slave owner. And he became convinced that as a Christian, he could not be a slave owner. That the two did not go together. And it took some convincing for him. But once he sought out the word of God, once he looked in here, he said, the two just don't match. They can't be the same thing. And so he was involved in politics in England. And as a Christian politician, he began to fight against this practice of slavery. And his main argument against it was that it's not biblical. He said, we've, we've all been doing as a society, and I know society accepts it, and society thinks it's okay, and so society is telling us that we should tolerate it and let it happen. But I looked in God's word, and he's very clear on it here, that, that this is not a practice that we should be doing. So based on this, because I'm a Christian politician, I'm going to do everything in my power to abolish slavery. And the thing that drove William Wilberforce nuts once he was fully convinced that this is what we were, he was supposed to do is he went out to his fellow Christians in England at the time and said, listen, you follow God, I follow God, you follow Jesus, I follow Jesus. I looked in here and according to God, this whole slavery thing that we all accept in our society, it doesn't, it doesn't match what's in here. So we should get rid of it. And he found very few people willing to go with him into that battle because what happened was the Christians feared societal norms at a greater level than where they feared God. And so when the two came into opposition, even when God was perfectly clear on what he says, society won, even in the church. And William Wilberforce was eventually successful in his quest, but along the way he wrote in his book, he said, the thing that bothers me the most among Christians in England is I can only find Christians who are worried about, about offending societal norms, and I can't find any who are worried about offending God himself. And in the church today, I can't help but wonder, 
If we as followers of Jesus Christ are more concerned, more concerned with not offending society and not offending the culture, even when God is absolutely clear. And so when the two are coming into opposition, when the two are coming up against each other, when what society says is okay and what God says is okay, come in contact more and more in the church and more and more in the hearts of followers of Jesus Christ and more of us in our minds and our hearts are allowing society to win. And so what we're saying is I fear society, I fear culture, I fear the world, I fear the opinions of others, and I keep that commandment. No matter how much we say we follow God, no matter how much we say we're a follower of Jesus Christ, when we, the two come in contact and society wins, we can just change the words and say, we fear society and we keep society's commands. And it's a dangerous thing It's a dangerous thing when we start to fear things other than God. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's a dangerous thing for two reasons. For two reasons. And he says them in verse 14. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring into judgment every deed, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. For God will bring into judgment, ultimately, every deed, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the exam. This is the exam that we're facing. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says two things. He said, when you're choosing what to fear in your life, when you're choosing what you're going to hold up so high that it affects how you think and how you believe and how you live, just remember two things. And the first one, he says, if you're going to be wise, you should fear the one who judges you last. If you're choosing who to fear, a good principle to live by, he says, is fear the one who judges you last. The things in this world, the family that we have, the friends that we have, the coworkers that we have, society's pressure, culture's pressure, the judgment that comes into our lives, the evaluation that comes into our lives, everything that we see around us, it is all temporary. And all those judgments will pass away, but there is one who will judge last. And what he says will matter for eternity. Everyone else, their judgments matter for a little while, a little while. But his judgment matters for eternity. So if you're going to choose to fear someone, fear the one who will judge you last and live your life by his standards. Live your life by his commands because when he judges last, you'll be all right. So often we're willing to compromise that. Willing to live as if Society judges us last. All the while forgetting that there's, there's a big test coming. There's a big evaluation of our lives coming. If you take an adolescent psychology class or you read a book, they talk about the invisible audience that begins to, to grow in the, in the, in the mind of, a, of an adolescent 
as they grow up. And we've all seen this happen. We've experienced it ourselves. We begin to become aware that we're being evaluated and that we're being judged by people around us. And so this sort of imaginary audience begins to, to form some of it perceived and some of it real. And it begins to take shape. And all of a sudden, uh, when we're in our teenage years, all of our clothing decisions, all, all of our friendship decisions, the things that we say, the things that we listen to are, are, are directed by this fear of this imaginary audience that's out there. And I don't think for most of us as adults that that ever goes away. It never goes away. There, we think there's this imaginary audience out in front of us, some of it real, some of it perceived, and we're so worried about offending that audience or, or having that audience judge us as, 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 as a bigot or, or intolerant or, or whatever it is. We're so worried about that invisible audience putting us down and telling us we're failing the test, that we would sacrifice, that we would sacrifice the one who will judge us last and not follow him because we're so worried about what the audience says. Writer Ecclesiastes says, you want to be wise, you want to be smart about this, you want to pass the test, fear the one who will judge you last and do what he says. There's one person that's lived over the last couple decades who I would be willing to bet, has affected almost every life in here in some way. He lived and he worked and he, he built a company and there really isn't a person in here. I would, I would make the argument, I bet you somewhere your life has been affected by the fact that he lived and that he started a company. Right? And when Steve Jobs did his work, he revolutionized everything. Right? It revolutionized everything. We don't listen to CDs anymore. The way we talk on the phone, the way we do, the way we compute things. There's so much of what we do that is different because he lived. And when society judges him and his greatness, it is off the charts great. He accomplished everything that you would want to accomplish. Affected the whole world. Most of us would argue in positive ways. But I can promise you that when Steve Jobs got cancer and passed away, there was another test that was coming. It had nothing to do with what society thought about him or what America thought about him or what teenagers thought about his products and how great they were. There was another judgment that was coming and he stood face to face with his creator. And I don't know his heart and I don't want to pretend to know his heart. All I'm saying is I promise you he had that appointment. And all of us are going to have that appointment. And in that moment, when God says, what did you do with the time that I gave you? What did you do in each and every situation? Did you fear me and keep my commands? The answer, we moved 20 million iPhones in a day, God, all of a sudden has no meaning. What, what does that matter? Our stock price, it reached, it went well over $500. It was unbelievable, God. Yeah, we changed everything. People, we took music digital and everybody had our, had our program and that's how they bought all their music. Did you 
fear me? Did you trust in me? Did you do what I asked you to do? All of a sudden, in that exam, in that evaluation, in that test, the things that we think are so important here all of a sudden lose so much value and meaning. It doesn't matter in that moment. But yet we live our lives as if they're so important, all the while ignoring that there's a final test coming. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen, when you're choosing who to fear, fear the one who will judge you last. And the last thing that he says is he says, keep in mind that everything, everything, everything is going to be on the exam. Everything is going to be on the final exam. Every decision that you make, every choice that you make. And some of us are thinking, well, I think I'll be okay. And then he says, and every hidden secret thing. And we say, oh, shoot, the secret things are going to be on the test. Everything's going to be on the test. Everything is on the test. And the fact that that test exists, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, the fact that that test exists brings meaning and purpose to every single thing that we do in our lives. If God doesn't exist and this final test doesn't exist, then everything that we do has no eternal purpose or meaning. I mean, we just live and then we're gone. We're just here for a while and then we're not. And so what is the point? If there's no final exam that we're going through, there's no God, if there's no judge, then life has no purpose. It has no meaning. It has no point. But because God exists and because there isn't a a final evaluation, all of a sudden, everything that we do and everything that we say and all that we choose matters immensely. We need to ask, am I fearing the right thing in my life or am I letting other fears take me down the wrong path? I'm going to invite our worship team to go ahead and come back as we prepare to close today. And here's the harsh reality of this final exam. You know it and I know it for myself. If every decision that we make matters for this final exam, if everything that we do matters, if in every situation, whether or not we feared God and kept his commands matters, if that's the criteria upon which we are judged and every decision we've ever made in our lives, including the hidden secret things, is included on the exam and the only acceptable grade is 100%, then I know for myself and I, I, would, I know that you know for yourself that if that's the criteria and 100% is the only acceptable score, we've already bombed the final. We've, we've already failed the test. So what do we do then? Just give up? The good news, the good news is that God sent someone to take the test in our place. That God knew we were going to fail. 
God knew we couldn't do it on our own. And so he sent his son, he sent Jesus Christ to take the test in our place, to do what we couldn't do, left to our own, if the criteria is fearing God and keeping his commands in everything that we do, in any and every situation, even in the dark, secret, hidden places of our hearts, if that's the criteria, we know that we have fallen short. We know that we have failed. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has sent someone who was able to take the test and pass it with flying colors, was able to take the test and get 100% on it, was able to take the test and do everything that we possibly couldn't do. And he died in our place and he took our punishment so that if we would put our hope and our trust in him, we would pass the test. Because on our own, we can't pass it. But Christ has passed it for us. And so we continue in holding God up above everything else and fearing him and keeping his commands all the while, trusting in Jesus Christ who has gone ahead of us and passed that test on our behalf. And as we close this morning, I'd invite you, if you would, just to stand. Just to stand and bow your head and close your eyes and just think with me for a moment here. So some of us are in this morning, this, in this place this morning. We're in this place this morning and we realize that we have never decided to trust Jesus and the work that he did on our behalf. We're still trying to be good enough. We're still trying to be smart enough. We're still trying to be innovative enough to impress God and to make it past the test on our own. You can't do it. The standards are too high. There's no perfect score available. And so this morning, you would stop trying on your own and you would say to Jesus Christ, I want to trust in you. I want to trust in the work that you've done on my behalf. I want you to be in control of my life. I'm going to stop trying on my own and I'm going to begin following you because I recognize I can't do it on my own. I can't pass this test on my own. I need Jesus Christ who has done the work for me to go ahead of me and have him take the evaluation so that I can pass that test. And this morning you would come before God and you would just lay it out in front of him and say, God, you know me. You know everything I've done. All the things that other people have seen and all the things that they haven't. And God, you and I both know I'm not going to pass this thing on my own. So I put my hope, I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone that his death and resurrection would pay the price for me. And listen, so many of us are here this morning and I need this in my own life as well. I can see places in my life and perhaps you can too where I have allowed fear of other things, fear of money, fear of others' opinions, fear of, fear of family, fear of culture, fear of society, fear of all these other things. Stop me from doing what I know that God wants me to do in my life. I have stopped doing what God wants me to do because I'm fearing things that are of this world and 
some of you here are in college, you're in high school, and, and you know this is happening to you. You have followed God with your life, but you're in this place where you are fearing the people who are around you, and so you are starting to do things that you know you're not supposed to do. You're starting to do things that you know God doesn't want you to do, and the only reason you're doing them is because you're fearing the people around you more than you fear God. And today, this morning, is a morning to come before God and to say, God, I want to fear you most of all. God, forgive me for those areas in my life where I am fearing others, where I am fearing society, where I am fearing culture more than you. And in the last few moments that we have together, I'm going to ask you to do something, not because I think it's magical, but I think it's good to mark a moment and come before God humbly and say, God, this is what we want you to do. We want to fear you above everything else. We want to fear you above society. We want to fear you above this culture. We know that you get the last say. No one else has the last say. And so we want you to be in control of our lives. And I'm going to say, if that's you, this morning, if that's where you're at, that you want to fear God above everything else, that you would come forward as we sing, that you would come to this altar, that you would kneel before God, and together as the body of Christ, as followers of Christ, as the church of God, that we would say as one family, God, we want to fear you above everything else in this world. So God, would you move through your Holy Spirit in these moments? God, would you convict our hearts and show us those areas where we need to change? God, would you do your work as only you can? Would you provide healing and restoration in our lives? as we pray in Jesus' name. Jason's going to lead us in worship and the team. Just come. Come if that's you. God, I want to fear you above everything else in this world. God, I want to fear you before anything else. What you say is most important. You get the last say. Let's kneel before him this morning.